I'm part of, if you didn't know this, I'm part of a very exclusive club of pastors. Not every pastor can be a part of this club. You have, there are certain requirements, certain specifications that you uh, must have. It's an elite group, and, and we're called the Junkie Car Club. And I drive a Cherry 2002 Honda Accord, and uh, it has gained me admittance into uh, this club. The dash lights don't work, so when you drive at night, you do a lot of praying uh, that you are actually going under the speed limit. The front bumper is actually held onto uh, the frame of the car by string, uh, the type of string that you would attach a couch or a, a bed on to top of your car if you go to Home Depot. The front window has uh, just a wonderful little leak in it. And so if it rains, uh, my left leg will get absolutely drenched if it rains. But here's the most important part. It runs. The car runs. And so if you're part of the Junkie Car Club, you know, there's really two things that matter. Number one is the car goes. It doesn't matter what kind of sound it makes, what sort of lights are on on your dashboard or not on your dashboard. Uh, it, it matters if the car goes. Does it work? And does it go straight? Like, is the car aligned? Is it supposed to go where it was made to go? Now, it's easy to figure out you've been a part of the junkie car club if your car is not aligned properly like if you're holding the wheel straight but you're veering into the median and there's no wind there's no nothing the road's not slanted you are misaligned you're out of alignment or if you have to hold the wheel you know at a 30 degree angle just to go straight you know that your car is out of alignment do i have any fellow junkie car club members here yes yes it's great you're always apologizing when people get in the car it doesn't normally look like this Yes, it does. Um, you know, you clean it, maybe you wash that car, like actually, what, once every two years? Um, it's 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 exclusive club. Now, some of us, when you talk about being aligned or not aligned and, and being part of the junkie car club, some of us know what it feels like to be not in line with the gospel. Now, here's the deal. When you're not aligned with your car, you actually can wear out your tires faster. And it's very dangerous. It's, it's dangerous for you who are driving the car. It's also dangerous for other people because you can easily blow a tire or veer into one of them. Some of us know what it's like to not be aligned with the gospel, with the truth of God's word. It's the same thing. You can kind of burn out your tires. And it's dangerous for you. And it's dangerous for other people. to actually hurt other people. And so my question is, is when we're out of alignment, how does God correct us? Because when you're out of alignment here, you, you go to a good mechanic, right? You go to a, a mechanic that you trust, a mechanic that you know cares for just not your car, but you as a person. They want to get you back on the road. They want you to be safe. So how does God align us when we're spiritually out of alignment? That's what we're going to talk about in, in our passage today, because we're going to see someone who is out of gospel out of spiritual alignment, how God corrects them, how God works in their life. Turn to Galatians 2. We are going to be walking through a narrative here, in a sense, 
teaching in a sense that if you don't have God's word in front of you, you're probably going to get lost. I'm just going to be honest with you. We preach out of God's word. Uh, it's good that you interact with God's word instead of just letting me interact with God's word for you. I want you to interact with God's word. So you have Bibles back there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, that's, you know, a, a normal modern translation. We don't use anything special. We don't believe that translations, you know, any holier than others. Um, it's just the translation we use. It's a good translation. It's the ESV. Uh, but that Bible is your gift. If you don't have a Bible, it's our gift to you. Take it home. Don't feel guilty about that. In Galatians 2, false teachers had been challenging Paul's apostleship. So these, these churches in this area known as Galatia, and, and Paul has been sharing a gospel of grace, and there's been these Jewish teachers that have been uh, piling on to that gospel of grace, essentially saying, yeah, you need to believe in Jesus to be saved, but you also have to do these other things to be saved. Like we talked a lot about circumcision last week, really fun topic to talk about. So if you want to talk about circumcision, listen to last week's message. I say it like a hundred times. And so take a look at that. Uh, but, but things like that, you know, believe in Jesus, but also do this. And we've talked about how part of their strategy was to undermine the authority of Paul in Galatia. And they would say things like, Paul's not a real apostle. You know, he heard his gospel from maybe the real apostles or he twisted it or he just made up that gospel outright. But his gospel is not the real gospel. But we saw last week, Paul do a couple things. One, we saw him reiterate that his message was from God. Paul has the grade A, authentic, name brand gospel. But we also saw him meet with the early apostles in Jerusalem, the, the Christianity's headquarters at the time, and all of them get on the same page. It is through faith alone. You do not have to add circumcision to be saved. You don't have to put your faith in Jesus Christ, then schedule an appointment to get circumcised to be saved. It is through faith in Christ alone. And all the false teachers in Galatia said, uh-oh, because we've been teaching the exact opposite. And so Paul here is continuing for the last time, to establish his authority. He wants to let it be known that he is somebody worth listening to. And to do that, he unpacks this interaction he has with an apostle named Cephas. Now, who is Cephas? Do we know? He's Peter. Yeah, he's Peter. So he's talking to an apostle, Peter, who he was in agreement with in Jerusalem earlier. And so pick up in Galatians 2, look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. But when Peter, Cephas, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. Before, before, or for before, certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So sometimes after what we saw last week in Jerusalem, they're all in agreement. They're all celebrating. They're all holding hands. Peter takes an Uber down to Antioch. Now, Antioch was Paul's missionary headquarters. And Antioch was the land of the Gentiles. And so Peter goes to where Paul is at. He's surrounded by Gentiles, people not like him. And he begins to eat with the Gentiles. Now, if you think of Gentile, just think of non-Jew. You know, if you're not Jewish, you're, you're a Gentile. So he's eating with the, these Romans, these Greeks, these people. And, and, and this, to us, doesn't seem like that big of a deal, right? He's just eating. Everybody needs to eat. 
you know, why is he sitting at this table eating with these Gentiles? Such a big deal. Well, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, circumcision was important and purity was important. So God had established an intricate and detailed set of laws intended to keep the Jewish people clean and acceptable for the presence of God in worship. Now included in this were dietary laws, restrictions on forbidden foods that Gentiles would often eat. Don't eat this, don't eat this. We see pork, we see creatures that dwell at the bottom of the ocean, you know, like crab and lobster, which is oh so good. And, you know, there's these animals that are considered dirty, forbidden. You do not eat these. That's what eating kosher means. It means adhering to the Old Testament laws that God had given Israel. Now, some believe that even after Jesus' death and resurrection, those commands were still binding, just like circumcision. For you to be a true child of God, you have to be circumcised and you have to eat this way and you have to do all these other things, which we've, we've talked about a little bit. And so Peter comes to Antioch and he's eating with these Gentiles because he knew that that time had passed. Have you ever heard somebody argue, why don't you guys, you know, if you believe the whole Bible, why, don't, why do you eat bacon? Because our, we, we've been set free, baby. Uh, well, you know, why, why don't you eat lobster? And sh- it says in the Old Testament, well, Jesus in Mark says that those laws have been fulfilled in, in him. It's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, it, it, what, come, what comes out from the heart. We see in Acts Uh, God sends Peter a vision affirming this change. Things have changed under the new covenant of grace. He sees this group of animals on a sheet. It's a very weird vision. And then he tells Peter to, to, Peter says, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Which Peter doesn't ever, they don't like that verse. Rise, kill, and eat. Don't claim something to be impure that God has made clean. Peter knew this. God directly revealed to Peter, don't worry about these dietary laws anymore. They've been fulfilled in Christ. And so Peter goes to Antioch. He's eating with the Gentiles. He's like, pass me the bacon wrapped shrimp. Let's go. He's just eating, eating away. And then these guys from James, the circumcision party come and, and Peter shirks back. He says, guys, I can't, I can't eat with you anymore. Maybe some of you have had this happen to you in middle school. Uh, you know, these guys are coming. They can't see me with you. I, I got to be over here. Now, it's important to note that Peter didn't make this switch because his theology changed. His theology didn't change. Peter didn't make this switch because he, he was convicted that his gospel, the gospel of grace, the gospel of faith was, was wrong. What's the reason he shirked back here? It says fear. And we don't know the reason that Peter was afraid. Maybe he was just afraid of persecution or of losing his credibility with his primarily Jewish audience. Did he fear for his life? We don't know. But we do know that his, his actions had consequences. Look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically, 
along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. We tend to think of our sin as vertical. It's just between us and God. You know, I've sinned against God. I've messed up. I got to tell him sorry. But guys, more often than not, our, our sin has horizontal consequences. When you choose sin, you, you, you will either influence others or hurt others. Your anger problem, your drinking problem, you know, your pornography problem is not just your problem. It will either influence others or it will hurt others. And that's what we see here. Everyone, everyone starts to follow them. They're hypocrites. The, the definition of a hypocrite is somebody who believes one thing and does another thing. And so when we say something like, man, I believe that God is generous and gracious and kind to me, but then you're just a, you're not generous, gracious and kind with other people. That's, that's hypocrisy. And hypocrisy often turns people off to Christianity. And we see that here. We see him leading people astray through their hypocrisy. Even Barnabas, who was with them last week when they made this decision about no circumcision day and all these things, and they were high-fiving. Even Barnabas is led astray by what's happening here. They're not living in their convictions. So Paul confronts the issue. Look at 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step, underline that, was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, to Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul says to Peter, you are out of alignment. You are out of step with the truth of the gospel. Your alignment with the gospel you have, you have preached, your misalignment with that gospel is affecting others and it's sending the wrong message. You see, Paul's not just worried about Peter here. He's worried about Peter. But he's also worried about the message that Peter is, is sending. So for Peter to, to get up from the table and, and walk away and sit with the circumcision party, to distance himself was sending a certain type of of message and, and Thomas Schreiner, who's a who's a theologian, uh, put it like this: By not eating with the Gentiles, he was saying, in effect, that they were not true believers unless they observed the food laws. Yeah, you you trusted Jesus, but you also have to be circumcised. You also have to eat kosher to be approved by God. And if you don't do that, I'm not going to sit with you. Now, Peter knows that this gospel plus is junk. Yet he's moving people to, to embrace it. And Paul questions him. How can you compel the Gentiles to adopt the Jewish law in order to be saved? He said, like, I thought we were done with this. I thought we were done with this gospel plus counterfeit gospel, Peter. We just talked about it in, in Jerusalem. And now you're leading other people to adopt this gospel plus. What's, what are you doing? Let's work through this mess. So Peter's out of alignment with the gospel. And so God uses Paul to realign him. 
And Paul doesn't just come up and just smack Peter and then say, stop it. What are you doing, you knucklehead? Paul gets out his theological toolbox and he uses the the truth of the gospel to realign him. Look at verses 15 and 16. I'm going to have you underline a few things here. We ourselves, Peter, are Jews by birth and not Gentiles, not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person, underline this, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ Jesus. Underline this, not by works of the law. Because, you can underline this, by works of the law, no one will be justified. So in two verses, he essentially says the same thing. Peter, you and I know more than anybody else. We we were raised in this. We've been Jews since birth. We know what it's like to live under the system of the law. And we know that no one is justified by works in the law, by the law. He says it three times. No one is justified by works of the law. By works of the law, no one will be justified. A person is not justified by, by works of the law. Underline that term justification or circle it. You see it a ton of times. This is the first time we see the word justification popped up in the book of, of Galatians. Now, this is, a, this is people have written volumes on this term, justification. Justification, usually its root word, it can be translated as like righteous, made righteous. But for, for this purpose, it's declared righteous. You can have all those kind of nuances here, and it's generally used in, in uh, the court where, where a judge would declare somebody not guilty. So if, you, if you've not done something wrong and, and you're not guilty, that's, that's being justified. The judge declaring you to be not guilty and right standing. You did nothing wrong. Therefore, there is no punishment. You can go free. That's how justification was normally used in the ancient world. Biblically, in Scripture, it's used to reference God declaring a sinner to be not guilty, righteous, and in right relationship with him. So Paul here is saying, adherence to the law, works, circumcision, not eating this, eating this, jumping through this hoop, doing this, church attendance, having your quiet times, those things will not justify you because the requirement of the law is perfection. And we know that there is not a single person in this room who is perfect. And if, you're, if you claim to be perfect, this may be a hard place for you to be long term. Because we say it all the time, not one of us is perfect. All fall short, all sin, all choose rebellion. We're all guilty, which is really fun to say to a church. I mean, it's, there's part of them, guys, I, I've said this a bunch of times. I try to not be offensive about so many things. Guys, people are offensive about politics and masks, anti-masks, homeschool. Like people get in fights about all these dumb things. And I just kind of sit back because you know what is offensive is the gospel, 
The gospel is offensive. If it's offensive to say, hey, bud, hey, bud, God is not impressed by you. Like, that's kind of offensive to say. It's offensive to walk up to somebody and say, hey, hey, I know you're good, good, but your goodness isn't good enough. The gospel is offensive. We will not be justified through works. And so how does God then declare a sinner to be not guilty? Because that doesn't sound like a good, just, holy judge to me. How does God declare somebody who has broken the law and sinned to be not guilty? And we have our answer right here. But through faith in Christ Jesus. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ Jesus. Now faith here is more than believing that Jesus existed. Most people, even, even liberal academics, will, will say, yeah, Jesus was a real person. He's a good teacher. He taught us how to love each other. It's more than just believing that Jesus existed and that he taught us some things and that we should just be nice to each other. It's putting our faith in Christ Jesus, the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. It's putting our faith in Jesus as our, as our substitute and as our representative. Write those two words down. If you have a piece of paper, write down substitute and, and representative because it's important to think about those two things as we talk about justification, God declaring us righteous. A substitute, apart from Christ, we're guilty. But God in love sent Jesus as an atoning sacrifice. He was our substitute. Our sin wasn't excused, ignored, or swept under the rug. God didn't say, ah, it's not that big of a deal. Just let it be. His wrath was poured out on Jesus in our place. Jesus paid the price for our sin. So to the one who has faith in Jesus, your sin debt has been credited to Jesus Christ's account. Your sin has been taken care of. Jesus walks into the courtroom and says, I will take the punishment. I will take your sin upon myself. I will take care of it so that you can be declared not guilty. That's what it means for Jesus to be our, our substitute but he's also our representative. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was morally perfect. He was without sin. He was the lamb without blemish or, or defect. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law perfectly. He kept the law. He was obedient fully in life and death. Jesus is the only person through his actions, could be declared righteous because he did not sin. And here's the crazy part. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our representative, his righteousness is then counted to, to our account. And so there's this great exchange that happens when we put our faith in Jesus. Our sin is is credited to Jesus's account and 
He pays for that sin and his righteousness is credited to our account. Have you ever heard of a deal like that? It'd be like you buying a Bugatti, like a $2 million Bugatti. Now, most of you at this stage of life aren't able to pay back that Bugatti. Like, you know, if you're $2 million in debt, good luck. Dave Ramsey ain't going to dig you out of that hole. Like, I don't care uh, how much you try to save, how much you try to budget. You, there's no way you're paying that back. And, and imagine, you, I mean, A, you, you're not very smart for getting a $2 million loan for a Bugatti. Uh, you, you wreck the Bugatti. You crash it. And then you take it back into the Bugatti dealer and you're like, yeah, I was looking at my phone. I'm an idiot. I, cr- I wrapped it around a, a light pole. It, it, it's as if the dealer is saying, hey, hey, don't worry. I love you. You're a car dealer. Why do you love me? Just, I love you. I'm going to pay the debt off your old Bugatti, the thing you wrecked. I'm going to pay that $2 million that you can never pay back. And guess what? Boom, brand new Bugatti. I'm going to give you a new Bugatti as well. It's fun to just say Bugatti. Uh, You should try it. Uh, But that sounds crazy. But guys, the, the truth of the gospel in a good way is crazier. He has paid a debt we could never pay back, and he has given us everything of value. His presence, life, eternal life with him forever, hope, peace. That's the kind of deal that God worked out. Why? Because he loves us. Here's a crazy thing to think about. When you are in Christ, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he doesn't look at you and say, hey, hey, Jill, there's, there's Jesus, the righteous one, and there's Jill. She's just the sinner who's messed up and can't make good decisions. This is not personal, Jill. I'm just using you as an illustration. Uh, she doesn't say, hey, there's Jesus who is righteous, and there's Jill who is, who's just broken and, and messed up. When we are in Christ, we are in such a union with Christ that the two become one. So when God looks at Jill, he sees the righteousness of Christ. It's what it means to be hidden in Christ. It's what it means to be robed in righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And so so God looks at the person who is in faith and he declares you righteous. You are not guilty. That is how God declares a sinner righteous. It's through the work of his son. God didn't just let us sit there. He did something about it. So can you see Peter's argument here? Peter, Come back to these gospel realities. We're not saved, justified by the law, what we eat, who we eat with, circumcision, no circumcision. Peter, stop influencing people to return to this thing that will not save them. The only thing that will save them. You know this, Peter, is faith in Jesus Christ. Get back over here and eat with the Gentiles. There are no cool tables in heaven. We are sinners who are saved by faith. Now, there are people out there who do not like this doctrine. Justification by faith. Martin Luther said the church stands or falls on this doctrine of justification by faith. But there are people who challenge it. There are people who challenge it now, which we'll talk about in a second. There were people who, who, who challenged it back then. The circumcision party most likely challenged it. So Paul kind of switches from a conversation with Peter into a type of argument that most likely Peter would have faced and Paul would have faced. Look at verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, 
We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant uh, of sin? These, these verses are really challenging to, to understand if you look at the original Greek. Uh, John Stott saw Paul addressing his critics who believe that Paul's gospel weakened a person's sense of, of moral responsibility. And you guys have heard an argument like this before. So if someone can be accepted through trust in Christ without any motivation to live according to God's law, then you're actually encouraging people to then break the law, to, to sin. Faith in Christ then can be excused for, for sin. Therefore, Christ promotes sin. Today, this argument may sound like, man, if God justifies bad people, if bad people can even be saved, why be good? Why not just do whatever we want? I mean, in that, kind of, Christ is kind of like encouraging us to sin. And Paul says, certainly not. Look at the rest of verse 17. Certainly not. In Romans, he essentially says, heck no. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Just because we're not under the law anymore doesn't mean that Christ encourages us to sin. In fact, if I placed myself back under the law and rejected the righteousness of Christ, then I would still be where I was, a sinner, condemned as a sinner, because the law can't save me. If I reject Christ and return to the law, then I'm just going to be where I was in, in my sin. Look at verse 19. For though I died to the law, for, or sorry, for through the law, I died to the law so that I may live to God. This is, this is how a person, just counteracting this argument, a person who's justified is going to view life and morality. In my previous life, I was caught up trying to save myself through obeying the law, through being good enough and moral enough but Christ fulfilled the law perfectly for me. I have died to that way of life. I am no longer under the burden of trying to gain the approval of God through my own efforts. I, who have been justified through faith, I now have joy and freedom that moves me to live for and obey God today. And he expands on this. Look at verse 20. One of the most famous passages. If you were in Awana, you probably told to memorize this passage. Memorize this passage. I remember being told to memorize this passage, really having no idea what this passage meant. And so I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I now live in the, the I'm sorry, in the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. The old me, the law-abiding me, the self-focused, self-exalting me, always failing me monster who stood condemned. That guy died. And now Christ lives in me. So, so false teacher... You're saying that if I'm not under the law and I just put my faith in Christ, that's going to promote lawlessness, man. Bro, Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. And he is the one who's going to move me to pursue holiness 
and obedience and service. God in me, working in me, is going to be the one who's going to move me to love and serve and obey. It's not going to give me the freedom to do whatever the heck I want to do. In fact, I'm going to live in accordance with the spirit of Christ that lives in me. And that's what much of my life is going to be about, is learning to yield and trust Christ in a way that he can work in me. Now, you can either be motivated by a nagging sense that you are falling short. This motivates a lot of people. This feeling of, I gotta, I gotta do this today to make God happy. I gotta do this today to make God uh, accept me. I gotta do, like, I gotta do these things. Like, that, that fear, that, that nagging fear. Well, well if, that, is that, if that's what motivates you, you are going to, to be burned out dead at the end of the day because you are never going to arrive. You are never going to feel like, man, I'm killing it. You may say on the outside, I look great compared to other people, but inside you're going to have a nagging belief that you are falling short. Now, this person's life over here is going to obey for a very different reason. They're going to obey out of the, the truth and understanding that they have already been saved, that they are already loved, that they are already accepted. And that's what a true love relationship looks like, right? Like think about your, your spouse. I love her. She loves me. Therefore, we're going to serve each other, sacrifice, give, give ourselves to each other. That's, that's way more motivating because in that is joy and freedom. There's guilt is not motivating. Shame is not motivating. It's just sheer love and appreciation, not because we can, can uh, pay back that debt to, to God, but because of what he has done for us. And, and guys, these two lives can look radically similar on the surface. But underneath, one is, one is driven by fear and shame and guilt. The other is driven by freedom, joy, and peace. This, this is the one I want you to have. To know that you're loved and that God loves you and he's working in you on your behalf. Look at verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God for if the righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Peter, to give up the gospel of grace, this, this justification that we receive through faith, to go back and act as if the law can save us is to say that Christ died for nothing. Peter, if we ever imply that what we do or what others do can ever merit justification, we are essentially saying that Jesus's death was not enough. Hey, thanks for dying for me, but it wasn't enough to save a person like me. And so a question often is asked is, how did Peter respond to this? Most likely he responded in a positive way. He went and wrote 1 Peter, 2 Peter. He even calls Paul in, in 2 Peter 3.15 a dear brother. And so the idea is this, this is addressed. And if we look at the, the, the council in, in Acts 15 in Jerusalem, Peter preaches against circumcision and adding to the gospel. Here, here's the deal. Let's bring this kind of back down to us, to me, me and you. It's easy for us to get out of gospel alignment. It's easy to fall out of step with the gospel of grace. It's easy to fall into a gospel of works, a gospel plus mindset. Some call it legalism. If you remember Jeff Foxworthy, uh, the 
comedian that I laughed at when I was 10 that I don't know if he aged very well, but do you guys remember the joke? He always, you might be a redneck, like you, you know, like you, you might be a redneck if you think the stock market has a fence around it, like they're like really kind of bad jokes like that. See, didn't age well. Um, that's his joke. Well, you, you might be misaligned. You might be misaligned if you might be buying into a gospel plus if you are constantly comparing yourself to others. God, thank you that I'm, I'm not like them. Thank you that I don't talk like them. I don't parent my kids like they do. I don't spend money like they do. You might be misaligned if, if you think that way. You might be misaligned if you worry constantly about getting a fair shake from God. God, you owe me something because I have been good this week. I was reading an article today that called, or article this week that called those people blessing accountants. They consistently weigh the good that they do with what they get from God. God, guys, that is that is being misaligned with the gospel. You might be out of a gospel alignment if you lack joy. If, if joy comes from knowing you are loved and accepted by God, weariness and frustration come from trying to earn that love and knowing that you are falling short. You might be out of alignment if you feel that God is never happy with you. Man, I, I know he loves me. I know I saved, blah, blah, blah. I prayed that prayer when I was eight years old. But I know he's not happy with me because I, I'm not doing enough today. I didn't do enough this week. On the other side, we, we fall out of alignment when we use the gospel as an excuse to sin. I'm, I'm saved. Why, why, why not do whatever I want to do on Friday because Jesus will be waiting there with forgiveness for me on Sunday morning. You might be out of gospel alignment if your Christianity is convictionless. Like if you run headlong into sin and you just no longer care. Both of those, we were, were, were out of alignment. Peter was out of alignment. But God worked through Paul to align Peter back to the truth of the gospel. Every single one of you in this room needs a Paul. Somebody that God can work through, a gospel mechanic that can fine-tune your heart back into rhythm with the gospel. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're 70. I don't care if you're 17. I don't care if you're seven. Every single person needs a Paul. Somebody to come into their life and say, hey man, this, this seems out of whack. And, and, and Paul always asks this question. A good Paul always asks, what does the gospel say to that? Hey man, I just don't feel loved by God. Uh, I'm constantly comparing myself to others. It's just not fair what, what God is doing. What does the gospel say to that? Hey, you're, you're struggling in sin. Uh, you're making these choices that are hurting you. And uh, what does the gospel say to that? If you don't have a Paul, it's why, why being a part of a community like this is important. Guys, I want us to gather and grow together and worship God, but we also got to gather and grow together. And that means submitting our lives to other people at times. I do that. I'm not the captain of this ship. God has worked through other men in my life to, to say, hey man, hey, you're burning yourself out there. Every one of us needs a Paul and every one of us needs to look out for Peters. 
Now, I don't want you walking around church and being like, sinner, 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 you're a sinner, you're a sinner, boom, gospel alignment. You, that's, I'm not telling you to be a jerk. But, but culture tells us if you love somebody, leave them alone. Scripture tells us if you love somebody, lean in. Step into their lives in love, with grace, with humility, understanding that you yourself can be tempted in that situation to be prideful and arrogant. In love, go to that person and say, man, I'm saying this because I love you, but you're making decisions or you're thinking in a way that you're, you're killing yourself, you're hurting your family, and you're hurting other people. We gotta be willing to do that with one another and we also have to welcome it. We gotta bring one another in line with a life-giving gospel of grace. So find your Paul, look out for Peter's. Let's pray.